Welcome to Knock Tales, our, our first whiskey podcast with me, Gordon Bruce from Knockdew Distillery. Uh, and I'm so pleased to welcome here today Jared Hinstead, head distiller from Balcones Distillery in, in Texas. Jared started out with a bit of home brewing and managing a craft beer bar in Waco before the whiskey world came calling. He became distillery manager of Balcones in 2008, at a time when making whiskey in a converted welding shop in the heart of Texas was just an idea. These days, Balcones has over 350 awards, and those in the know say it's the best of America's new wave of single malts. And Jared has had more than a hand in its success as head distiller, product developer, head blender, and even label designer. We'll chat, we'll chew the fat for a wee while. Hope you enjoy listening. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really cool to be invited on this, uh, this first foray into podcasting. Turns out you're a bit of a rock star. No, it's, it's not bad. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of right place and right time. I don't think anybody knew 12 years ago, when it, whatever it was, when we got started, that uh, this global explosion of whiskey, not to mention the interest in small producers and just how many people were going to come out of the woodwork and new distillers getting started. And couldn't have predicted Tended it. Beautifully, didn't you? We were, we were at a good time, yeah. Good yeah. time, good place for it. So you've got a lovely, shiny new distillery now. How does that compare <laughs> to the old one? It's nice. New equipment's uh, built by people that know what they're doing. is really, really nice. We uh, cobbled together a lot of our, our first distillery ourselves. Um, this has always been kind of a, a DIY element to the culture here. Nothing the um, matter with that. So if you don't know how to do it, ask somebody, read something. These days, I think you just watch a YouTube video, right? You can find a YouTube video on how to build a distillery, I think, probably. I had done a lot of ceramics work in college. I thought I was going into that field. I was going to be a pottery teacher at the university, but kind of got sidetracked. Life went a different direction. So I had experience with burners, gas burners, and insulation and things like that. So, yeah, we just kind of pooled everyone's skill set. Every once in a while, something comes up that nobody on the team could handle, and you hire somebody, but... Um, being broke, having a really small budget really helps helps you uh, get creative with uh, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. making things yourself if you have to. We moved into our new building in 2016. Um, mash tons that are meant for it and appropriate heat exchangers and, and uh, our new Forsyth stills and all that stuff. It's still really nice to have, have put together something at a much smaller scale that's similar because... You understand where everything goes and why things are the way they are. And I think even some of our crew that's come in since we've been here, that's just an experience you don't get to have. We Sometimes we go into the old building and uh, people that never worked in there with us, because we still have it. It's you know it's about four blocks away. It's tiny. It's 2,500 square feet, 1,000 liter stills. But there's just a maze of copper everywhere and valves. And we didn't even bother labeling too much because we knew we, put, we built it. We knew where everything went. Um, yeah. But it looks like chaos but if you remember soldering all those joints, it's a really nice, very direct connection with the process. The new distillery, has it been designed in mind to, to keep the same characteristics as the, the, the spirit from the old distillery? Yeah. Our original place, things everything went where it had to go. It was a small building with a single sloped roof. Um, there was really only one spot that I could get the stills into that made sense that wouldn't obstruct kind of a walkway. So they were in this corner. The line arm, we didn't have any, nothing was running with pumps, so everything was gravity fed. So even the new mate coming off the condensers, you know, I had to track how many inches of slope I could have over how many feet before I hit into, um, you know, receiving tanks and stuff. 
and um Grav- Gravity so is a wonderful thing. Don't know. It is. It's, it's really cool, and it's yeah. free. It's already there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all it always works, as far as we know. Um, anyway, so the condensers ended up somewhat high, and then that di- kind of di- ended up dictating just by the building, just by the architecture, that the line arm was quite long for the volume of the still and and had a slight upward slope. Um, Mega really, nothing is. Nothing of our choosing, just that's the way, that's where everything could, that's the only play, place things could go. I actually made a little uh, graph paper and little cutout to scale, you know, image, you know, little puzzle pieces, little game pieces of all the equipment and moved things around and tried to, as many different configurations as we could. And the, the thing we landed on is pretty much the only way it could have gone. But anyway, so moving into the new place, and working with Forsyth on designing uh, our new stills, and obviously they're trying to keep the, the physics and the geometry as, as similar as possible. Um, they actually made the joke that we were going to have to buy a building a few blocks away if we wanted the, the line arm length and slope to stay the same to the condenser. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> But they came up with a very elegant solution, and if you haven't seen pictures of our stills, I can send you some. But I'd like, the, I'd like that. The, the line arm... Uh, actually is a, a long kind of coil. So we kept the same slope and distance. And so it, it, it curls around above the still before it goes into the condenser um, to, to kind of keep that dynamic the same. Because you got the, the, the old mash done from Spayburn. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to see that people aren't too proud to use second-hand equipment. Uh, I'm a great believer in that myself. Absolutely. The um, That was really nice kind of accident too because we were we were going to be getting um a smaller brand new one that Forsyth was going to manufacture from scratch um anyway they called and said hey Spayburn is decommissioning this one for a bigger one uh we can kind of modernize it we can overhaul some of the fittings and uh kind of bring it into this century um for the same price and it's twice as big as what we were going to have made. So as a distillery manager, you, I'm sure you can appreciate um, the difference between having to mash in twice to fill up a fermenter versus being able to just mash once to fill up a fermenter is pretty nice. But of course the sliding doors on it are, you know, they're made by people and they're not uniform and they kind of roll if you give, if you give it a good shove. But to me, all of that is very endearing. It's definitely not. Oh, like definitely, that. yeah. Uh, this super homogenous, uh, uniform stuff that gets you know made today. Uh, a lot of brass. It's beautiful. At our old building, we were we were always up against the wall. We were selling everything we could make. We couldn't make stuff fast enough. What um, a situation to be in. <laughs> but yeah, and that's the irony too. Now we're bigger, and that's not the case. The first, I think, the first time we realized, like, oh, we probably need some salespeople. We probably need some people out there getting this stuff, uh, making sure this, these, all of these bottles and these pallets for full of whiskey have a home when they when they hit the market. <laughs> but uh, uh, but the, the downside of that was we never could we we could never take the time to divert um, a fermenter or a distillation to something that we had been thinking about doing for a while. Um, it just seemed irresponsible when you had other things that you knew were basically pre-sold. So. Um, that's probably my favorite. One of my favorite things about being here is all that excess capacity. And we've got to, we've gotten to do projects with friends too. We've had other Texas distilleries come up 
um, or uh, they want to run something that's bigger than their facility can handle. And so we can run, we run low lines for people and then ship it back to them to run on their stills, whatever, you know, all kinds of um, options open up when you have excess capacity. So I know in Scotland that the industry is very, very friendly. I mean, if, if Glendronach boiler feed water pump went bang tonight, they could borrow my one, no problem at all, just to get them going. And we're, we're very, very good at sharing information and how to get the best out of raw materials and such like. So right. there's no competition across here until, until it comes to sales and marketing. Sure. And I was wondering how you, you American distillers, are you kind of organized yourself in the, in the same sort of fashion? And it, it sounds like you have. There's always parties that are a little bit more guarded about what they're doing or um, that uh, just because of their personality, they approach some of their peers more as, as threats or as competition rather than just uh, part of the same community. But um, by and away, especially here in Texas, probably the main two segments of American whiskey that I'm mostly involved in would be the, you know, the Texas whiskey community, which is 12, 13 years old, really at this point. Um, and then of course the American single malt community nationally. Um, and those are both groups that in general, overwhelmingly friendly and, and a lot of cl- you know, collaboration, which is fun. Cause you know, I, I thought when I was younger, I thought, Beer was going to be my career path, and ceramics was also on the table. And those are both also communities that that's most most of the ethos is very collaborative and open. It's one of the only things that really makes sense to me. I can't imagine getting up every day and feeling paranoid and looking over your shoulder. That yeah, it sounds it's pretty refreshing <laughs> to hear. Yeah, <laughs> wants to live like that. Um, but uh, plus, it's such a. It's such a fun time. I, I have to assume it's happening over there as well. But right now in the U.S., it's it's such a it's the best way to put it. The, the community, starting with producers all the way through, kind of the, the whiskey drinkers on the final end. It's not a pyramid anymore. You know, it's it's been it's flattened, and it feels kind of more of a, a loop or a you know circular where there's there's feedback there's there's conversation the community uh just enthusiasts you know that that aren't working in the whiskey business um they're a huge part of where things are going and so there's kind of this this really fun much more direct connection between makers and consumers than i I feel like there was even 10 12 years ago so for for the community for all the distilleries to know each other and be friendly and collaborative and uh, all the way down to just these whiskey clubs that have so much influence and that are growing so fast and thousands of people, um, especially in some of the bigger cities that um, are super avid. They're helping. They're doing just as much education um, as, as the distillers are. So um, yeah, it really brand promotion. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. It's really nice. It just feels like everyone's on the same page with very similar goals. Um, and then it's a much bigger family. Uh, it's a much bigger community than it was um, 10 years ago. And I still get such a kick. I'm, I'm sure you get it as well. If you, you see somebody standing with a glass of something you made in their hand and a smile on their <laughs> face, uh, it, it's hard to beat that, isn't it? It's pretty, it's, it's pretty weird. I mean, if you, yeah, if you really let it, sink in that what a bizarre and really cool thing i mean it's i mean it's the same for anyone who actually makes 
whether it's a physical object or music or film whatever it is that, yeah mm-hmm. uh, just to know that someone spent time with the thing that you made uh i it, it should be humbling it's humbling for me i think it's every once in a while we th- just sit back and try to think through just the, the volume that we sell and then this is a few weeks back i was trying to do the math and figure out just how many bottles, how many drams are being consumed a day of things we make, you know? And it's just bizarre. It's really hard to put your mind around. What sort of number did you come up with? I don't, I don't remember what the number was, but, you know, it's hundreds of, it was hundreds of bottles. It was over 100 bottles. I don't remember what the number was, but even that, just to say, okay, somewhere, some today, 100 bottles of your whiskey are being drank by people somewhere. That's just weird. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. My professor made the point that you could make something that hangs up in a gallery. And yes, the sales price is going to be much higher than just like a soup bowl or a coffee mug. But if somebody buys a handmade coffee mug from you indirectly, you kind of, you're going to end up being a part of a very personal daily routine. They're going to spend way much more, way more time with that piece in their hand than they ever would staring for 30 seconds at something in a gallery and then moving on. And you're in their home, you know? Yeah, that's, that's uh, a great point. It's, it's pretty cool. But when someone had a story, he lived here close in, in Texas, and his, his father-in-law was Scottish, actually, and moved over here and was a welder, and he had married her, his daughter. And so his, his father-in-law was ill in the early years of us getting started. They were in the hospital. He wasn't doing well. And he said, hey, I've been reading these this news stories that there's these guys in town making single malt. you got to get me some. And uh, it took him a little while to find it because we were so small at the time. And uh, he finally grabbed a bottle and he snuck it into the hospital and they were drinking it um, together for the last uh, little bit of his father-in-law's life. And, and so now, you know, every year he, he pulls out whatever he's got left from that bottle and, and, and he said he was trying to make it last as long as he could. And I said, well, you, if you send me the, the batch number, I probably have some of that at the distillery and I can get it to you because it sure would be a shame for you to ever not be able to continue doing that every year. But when, when you hear stuff like that, it is a little bit mind-blowing. It's just like, I can't believe this thing that we do, that you, you humbly, diligently feel like you're just doing your job as best you can, um, that it ends up becoming something very precious to absolute strangers. Um, can't, you can't put a price on that, can you? No. This is what we get to do. This is what we get to do for work. Um, it's, not, it's not a real job, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and most of our guys here, we're really just um, makers as far as our, just our, our outlook on the world. We've got almost, almost no one here doesn't have some other major hobby that like our distillery manager, Tommy, he started off in coffee as far as sensory work um, and roasting. He's a very serious bread maker. He, he worked professionally as a brewer up in the Pacific Northwest for a while. Gabe was my, my main blending partner. He's super, super into wine and knows a ton about that. There's very few people that are kind of uh, that singular um, that work here. Um, this isn't the only thing they do. It's all transferable skills and attitude, isn't it? Oh, sure. I mean, we've, we've got a really small team here, and we've currently got five guys that actually make whiskey, plus assistant manager, handful of dogs, and me. Uh, what have we got? One 32 years, two uh, 31 years, one at 17 years. And the new kid's only been here for 14 years, so he's, wow. he's just a youngster. you got a but pretty stable the, team. Yeah, mostly. 
it's actually getting kind of nice. We've had some people come through here that have gone on to do their own projects. And uh, beer in the U.S. is a lot like that, where a lot of breweries can trace their their head brewer, their ma- their master brewers training or early years to other breweries. So it's kind of it builds this this web. But you know, the the craft thing in the U.S. isn't that old, and so it's kind of just starting to happen, where people that uh, were somewhere for five, eight, ten years are feeling like they want to get out on their own and develop their own kind of portfolio or start their own distillery that they can have ownership in. And so that's kind of a fun thing right now is to see people that have left here and what they're doing. What bits really float your boat in the distillery? Is there anything anything particular that you you get excited about or like to play with? Anytime there's a new product development, um, it's kind of funny. I think it's a little cliche, especially on the U.S. side, because the kind of finishing barrels for bourbon and rye is a lot less historic. Um, so it's kind of a new thing that not everybody's even really, not everybody even agrees if it should be done or is, if it's an abomination to throw bourbon into a, a port barrel or something. Um, as, as, <laughs> as simple as it is, and it seems somewhat lazy sometimes and to think, oh, we need a new expression or we need some new product development. The laziest thing you can do is, well, let's finish it in something that we haven't done before, right? But that being said, sometimes the, the results are just so delicious. Uh, it feels <laughs> silly. It feels like surely you can be a little more creative than just... Uh, we, we always joke about the, uh, the finishing barrel arms race. Who, who can find the most obscure... Um, thing to finish the whiskey in that no one else has ever tried but i'll, I'll sell you a herring barrel go for that yeah. <laughs> herring barrel. yeah we uh we actually found a few i feel fortunate once again gave my bunny partners so interested in wine that he's actually tracked down a few pretty off the beaten path casks that we've got we've got whiskey in it it's going to be really fun to play with but my i, I kind of have the final the final role in blending on kind of higher volume core products I'm I'm kind of brought in at the end after the other guys have done most of the work, and then I I work a lot more hands on from beginning to end with with special releases, which you know we release about average twenty or so expressions a year, and about wow. seven to nine of those are core. Like that, seven to nine of those happen pretty regularly, and they're always around. And then the rest of it is little one offs. Sometimes they just get sold at the distillery. Sometimes they're smaller ones that go out to market for different reasons or different places, but. Um, so most of my blending work is on those, you know, it's always on something that's new and fun and, uh, it's a little more special that we don't get to, you know, it comes around sometimes not even every year. So uh, it's kind of like getting a visit from an old friend kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think new, new product development and, and, and final blending on special releases is really, um, where I get some of the most excited. I also do our, I need to, I need to stop, but going back to the early DIY years, I, I did a lot of our graphic design and label design and stuff um, just because I had an art background and, and I do enjoy that, but uh, we've probably gotten to the point where I need to, I need to hand that off to someone. There's probably better uses of my time than uh, getting labels to, <laughs> designed and sent off to the printer. Um, inside the ball and outside the ball. My beautifully crafted distillery is, is it's situated in a small town, small village even. We've got 13 houses and 28 people in the city wow. of Knock. We've got a 20-mile round trip to buy a pint of milk or a newspaper. So we, wow. we are a wee bit remote, I must admit. Yeah. Uh, I take it you've yeah. got people all round about you and 
than Waco of you. Yeah. I don't know the most recent population numbers, but yeah, we're, we're probably at like 125,000 people, I think, something like that. Wow, well, that's a small country, man. Yeah, we've, well, yeah, I don't know how many times Scotland can fit into Texas, but um, it's a big place. The, we, shoot, we probably, if it, if it wasn't a snow day, which it is, um, we, we could have 28 people in the distillery on any given moment uh, working. So um, that's crazy. That's your whole town. Good heavens. <laughs> you must have mega quick maturation with these temperatures. We do. Those barrels, I mean, wood sitting at 130 plus degrees is pretty open and pretty, uh, those pores, you know, it's pretty stretched out. So the, the whiskey goes in deep and fast. Um, but then, of course, we still get, you know, sub freezing weather. So it's pretty drastic extremes. It was nine degrees the other morning, two days ago, and next week I think we're going to get up to seventy. So, uh, pretty silly, pretty silly temperature swings. Which is, you know, for the sensory side of things, it really means the whole idea of, uh, you know, you check on a cask and you decide, oh, you know, it needs another summer or it needs another winter. For us, sometimes that means we might need to check this in like three weeks. You know, so the, the sensory work of, of, of keeping track of barrels and the maturation is, is just a lot more hands-on, I think, than, uh, than it would be in a much more temperate climate. One of our main projects for the next few years is trying to figure out how to crack the code for older whiskey in Texas. Could, can we have anything left at you know, 8, 10, 12? Um, and I think, I think barrel size is going to be a big part of that, and entry proof is going to be a big part of figuring that out. But um, subterranean warehouses <laughs> yeah so the, the sensory work of, of, of keeping track of barrels and the maturation is, is just a lot more hands on I think than, uh, than it would be in a much more temperate climate I mean I, I don't want to sound morbid but I remember filling some really nice casts at the distillery last year pushing them into the warehouse I think no, it's not going to be me that's pushing these things back out of bond in 10, 12, mm-hmm. 14 years time huh? Uh, when we oh, got casks lying here in 1978, that's just pushing 43 years old, mm. and they're still half full. I was born in 76, so if you have any stuff from 76 lying around, I'd love to, uh, you know, come put a put a bid in on it. You know, 76. We had a, the, the hottest summer in centuries in 1976, so you oh, might yeah? struggle to find whiskey from 76. Yeah. Oh. So, well, I've never been to the states. Uh, I was in Canada a couple of years ago. It was my, my first trip to North America, which was absolutely fantastic. So hopefully sometime I'll, I'll get the opportunity to come across and say hello in person. Or if, yeah, that'd if you're be great. in Scotland, I'd be delighted to see you. You're your first guest, as I said. You're a rock star, I man. Know. This is uh, yeah. this is historic stuff. This, I'll never not be the first guest on this show. You know? <laughs> And if you ever get any second-hand distillery equipment, you, you no longer need. I'll, I'll give you a fair price, my man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, vice versa. <laughs> Let me know if uh, we should start a new website for, uh, you know, insiders. Someone's getting rid of something uh, before it just goes to a broker somewhere. Well, Jared, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you this afternoon, this morning to you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having us. It's really cool to uh, get to do this with you guys. and um, feel honoured mm. to be considered, so thanks. Mm.